Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I have Nick Oliveri and Corey Noble from Impact Snacks back on the show. But we're not going to be talking about Impact Snacks today. Instead, the three of us have all brought a few ideas to the table. And these ideas really run the gamut. It's everything from waste management in space and seaweed farming to climate subscription boxes and using rocks and minerals as an innovative way to bring new products to life. This episode was so much fun. If you're into just listening to new startup ideas and wacky ideas, I really think this conversation is gonna be for you. If you enjoyed it, let us know, because if so, we'll do more of them. It was really fun to record. So let's jump on into this conversation with Corey Noble and Nick Oliveri, co-founders of Impact Snacks. All right, Nick and Corey, back for round two. Let's get it. Thanks for having us back, man. Uh, This is awesome. So the listeners, y'all heard the intro at this point. This is going to be... uh, different episode than what we've done in episodes past. Instead of talking about one specific startup and then getting into the bells and whistles, we're just going to keep it super informal. We're going to do a really fun idea jam. And if you heard in the last episode with Nick and Corey, they have tons of ideas outside of their core startup that is Impact Snacks. So today... We're going to give you guys some of that juice, some ideas, original, some out in the world that we think are really cool, and we're just going to riff on them. If you guys want, do you do one of y'all want to take the torch first? Do y'all want me to lead off? Yeah, yeah. Why, why, don't, why don't you kick things off? I'm, I'm curious. You said you came prepared. <laughs> Sounds good. So I will start high level. I've been spending a ton of time learning about seaweed. And I think if you spend time tinkering in the world of sustainability, seaweed is a very well-known suspect. For the listeners, seaweed doubles as A, one of the most prolific and prevalent ingredient inputs in many things. It's used in biofuels, in livestock feed for cattle, in personal care products like face masks, in toothpaste, chocolate milk, so many things. And then secondly, it's also one of the most effective carbon sequesters in the world. Much like trees, it pulls carbon out of the air more effectively and more efficiently than most other plants. But the advantage it has over trees is that they don't burn down. Like what we've seen in California, over 2 million trees have burned down. And when it comes to kelp and other types of seaweed, once they've fallen to the ocean floor, they last for centuries. And century after century, they continue to pull down more and more carbon. They filter the oceans. They help restore them. They bring life to it. So the idea here is twofold. And it's actually probably the more unsexy ideas that I have on this list. There is a massive supply shortage in the world of seaweed. So there is outstanding demand, but there aren't enough seaweed farms around the world to meet the demand. And the cost and what it takes to start a seaweed farm 
is so easy, relatively speaking. So for roughly twenty to $50,000, depending on where you are, the size of your farm, you need 20 acres of ocean land and a boat. You can start a farm that nets, so profit, ninety to $120,000 a year, Pretty which serious. is insane. So again, this is like one of those unsexy, there's a formula established, there's a massive need in the world for more seaweed and if you got $20,000 you can raise from friends or family, you can start your own seaweed farm and you can help save the world because of the, the great planet healing benefits that come with it. And the second, so part B of this idea is the infrastructure play. So after seaweed is grown and harvested, it takes an incredible amount of tooling and effort to then process it. Right, so it's either shaved down into little into powder, but what, whatever its final commercialized form is requires very expensive tooling. Right, some of these facilities take one and a half million dollars upfront from a capital commitment standpoint to start processing. I think it's two million pounds of seaweed a year, and if you talk to seaweed farmers. This is actually one of the largest bottlenecks in the industry. So there's this demand. They have supply pumping out, even though there's still shortages there. But on top of that, there's massive infrastructure bottlenecks that are preventing farmers from effectively commercializing the product that they're growing. Again, these are like two ideas that it's not, hey, I'm trying to forecast demand in the future. I'm trying to predict if this thing will work, this thing will work. Both of those things, A and B, have massive upside potential. So if y'all want to do this, and this is more of a, like an open thing to the community of listeners, th- there's no guess and check here. You figure out how to do A or B and you will make money and you will do good in the world. So that's my spiel for idea number one. <laughs> That so that's super interesting. So my question is: twenty acres of, of ocean space. Do you think that cost is going to rise, or like how far out do you have to go? Like how competitive is is ocean space that's close to shore? What what, what does all that look like? Because obviously it sounds super compelling. And then, and then my question <laughs> would be like: why aren't why isn't even like private equity like like doing this at scale? I do not know enough to comment on the first half of the questions. My hunch on the back half is it probably has something to do with the sector. Like I know in conventional agriculture, like on top of real land, the average age of a farmer, I think it's 57 years old. I might be butchering that, but it's old. So the fact of the matter is there is only a unique cohort of people who have spent time learning the ins and outs of this category of industry. And that's got to be part of it, at least. Just like the lack of familiarity or proximity to the industry itself. As for like, why isn't there some type of roll-up or scaled capital equipment here? Oh, it's got to be coming down the pike. It's not a matter of if, it's it's a matter of when, especially with a, a business, an opportunity set of this nature. 
Gotcha, gotcha. And do you think that like vertical farming, urban farming is going to shift? Like shift, permeate shift? here? Yeah. Do you think that algae farming, you're no longer going to need 20 acres of ocean space. You, you can just do this in some building in. What's crazy? So the idea I have, I literally call this freight farms for seaweed. That is how I dubbed the idea. That's another big question mark for me, but you're right. If, if So I think you probably want to use real oceans because of all if the the environmentalist to me says that's great because it all the the second and third order positive effects of restoring ocean health but from a capability standpoint i don't think that's required you could probably you could probably just create like artificial oceans and that also have living things swimming in it i don't don't know but it's a great it's a great uh question if you could mimic that basically the the, i guess like the biomechanics or whatever it would be of an ocean and totally mimic that or at least to a to an effective point you could ship that out to consumers too and totally consumerize it and they could be like offsetting their own house's carbon footprint by just getting their own algae farm to go so i guess i would it be a farm? Probably not because it's not – it'll be in like a box or something relatively small, but mm-hmm. have to go in your yard. But any way to make that smaller and easier I think is definitely the way to go. And it, and it also leads to understanding and more education too just for consumers. I think it could be – yeah. Once that mm-hmm. starts being gifted out, gifted algae farms, like that's when we really take off and like really begin to make a dent. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. There's this yeah, – the- so, so uh, just to touch on like the value, there, there's this guy, I, I forget his name, I'm, I'm connected with him on, on LinkedIn, who has like an algae farming company, and, and his thing is, I think it's like abundant algae without the acreage equals value, is his his pitch for vertically farmed algae, which I think is a cool way of putting it. Oh, I like that. Yeah, another question I would have, and this is more tactical, but where can you accrue the most value in that value chain? So if you look at just commodity crops, potato, corn, et cetera, does in this instance in seaweed, does the farmer capture most of the value? Is it the connector in the middle, the infrastructure that processes it? Or is it the company that then effectively like white labels it or puts it into their product? Like I'm guessing when you look at companies like Quest who sell whey protein, I don't know if they're the actual manufacturers of it. I don't know if they're just buying it from a producer and then 10xing the price tag and making it look pretty. So it would be interesting to me to figure out like how exactly the economics play out at each point of the chain. And if you were to focus your attention on kind of the highest upside part of the chain, where would you start? Yeah, some, someone like Quest, they're interesting because I believe from day one, they did all their own manufacturing. Which is pretty mm-hmm. tough, but I think in their case, they, they probably capture <laughs> the majority of that upside. But yeah. I, I don't know enough about algae and, and what the markups currently look like. I'm just trying. I'm just trying to think of what. Yeah, what is the what? What's like the how, how expensive the algae products get? Because I've seen it used as a very low cost ingredient. So how about you guys? What you got? What you got on the docket? Yes, on the. I guess this strain of uh, material sciences. I think so. I really. 
I love the idea of <clears throat> making fuel out of abundant resources that have clean byproducts that aren't oil. Yeah, ba- yeah, basically that. But there's so much exploration with fuel cell and, and things like that. I don't really understand that. I haven't even looked into that too much. But I kind of had this idea one day. What's one of the most abundant things on Earth? It's like rocks and minerals. They're everywhere, especially in New England, just because of some uh, geological phenomenon with glaciers and things that I don't really know about. We have so much here. There, rocks are everywhere. And so I don't know how this would work. I'm sure you'd need geology and chemists and all sorts of things to make this happen. And But I am sure it's possible in some way this is possible, but basically make an everyday use material that has varying, I guess, fortitudes. So one would mimic like corrugated cardboard, except be tougher and lighter, like carbon. But then some would be like almost mimicking like a plastic bag, but it would be all made out of rocks and minerals. I don't know which rocks that would work on. I'm sure there's a specific type and a specific treatment process, maybe. But there is, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, That's super interesting. Question for you. Just yeah. to build on that. So where do you stand on the spectrum of synthetics versus using natural inputs? Like, for example, in the world of probably not impossible, but like Memphis meets or alt meets this mm-hmm. idea of like 3D printing new meats, which I guess do come from cartridges of some sort. So. That's probably I, uh, nuanced, but I think it's all about. I think it's all about the byproducts and the inputs, uh-huh. and so long as both of those sides are clean, then I don't care. But the thing is, I would prefer. So the best case for me, and this is something emerging, is steak that's literally grown in a lab, but it's based on cells. And and I, I think Corey, what's that company with the synthetic hemoglobin that literally makes it taste exactly like Impossible steak? Fruits. That is impossible? Yeah. I don't know if it's synthetic. I think it's a culture they grow. They call it keen, but it's based on hemoglobin. Yeah. Right, right. Like the irony taste of of blood. (laughs) Yeah, which is amazing. So, yeah, I don't know how synthetic that even is and what the the masses would consider that, either synthetic or otherwise, because that's like... Mm -hmm. That is interesting. Yeah, 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 for sure. This is like a coincidental connection between the seaweed and this idea but i do know seaweed is used more and more for biofuels and it's more efficient than corn which i know and other starches that are used in biofuels then similarly apparently seaweed is also used as a great way to recreate the umami flavor that most people love in meats. So that's what I'm super excited for. <laughs> There's a company called Trophic. Uh, I spoke with Beth Soddard, one of the co-founders, and they're, they're they're doing exactly that. And they're using a red seaweed, so it also enhances the color to make it look more like meat, which is just like a nice kind of add-on, even though it's not their main focus. The main focus is like what you're saying, the super elusive umami flavor. Man, this is anyways, Nick, super cool. And so the problem, because I kind of, so I think, okay, what's 
the end here and then what would make the most sense what would be the easiest at scale and i feel like as long as you get the treatment down and maybe you wouldn't start it at, at say like 20 different levels of fortitude like from something mirroring like a very loose thin plastic to something like way harder like a sheet metal or something but um, it's all about then like how is that going to be disposed of and will it ever have to be disposed of it's pretty much never it would be something completely sustainable and now i don't know the chemical treatment or anything like that but yeah i think the category is exactly where i would love to invest in someone that knows again, more about the material science piece of things that has the technical background. But I know when, again, I think you guys have really hit it home with the wrapper. And if you just extrapolate that same need across every other product category that needs some sort of packaging, you look at Byte, still uses a cardboard box. So it's just all these, this next generation of founders that wants to make sure that every part of their offering is responsible or planet conscious in mind would love to have the impact wrapper counterpart or, or alternative. And it, to, to this point, and I've done pretty extensive research, like you go just down the list, chips. The most recent semi-interesting attempt to create a sustainable plant-based chip bag was by sun chips so frito-lite back in i think the early 2010s yeah and wasn't it too crinkly or something and consumers were annoyed by it which is such a exactly they discontinued it because it was too loud but again there's so little there's so little success on the packaging front on the sustainable packaging front that is commercialized and then also withstood the test of time so whether it's rocks, minerals, whatever it is, there's just so there's just like blue ocean opportunity here. Yeah, here's something: ceramics can't be recycled. So when ceramic breaks, where does it go? A landfill. I don't know. I don't know the byproducts. Once I don't know how long it takes to decompose. But so it's something far easier than like changing the chemical properties of rocks and minerals, certain types of them, to make something super, super. I guess I guess flimsy and, and malleable. What about just cups? What about just even like single use water bottles? Like they wouldn't be single use because they're so steadfast, sturdy. They're the rocks. But like, why is this not a thing? They, first of all, D to C, rocks ship very well. You wouldn't need a lot of protection for them. You'd need to protect other items that, that, that they're being shipped with. It just, it makes so much sense to me. If I drop this coffee cup right here, it would get thrown away and it would get put in the landfill. It was made out of a rock. Now, maybe this has been tried before, but I really, I don't think it's that hard. And I know you can make molds out of rocks. That's that's not hard. So yeah, and it also eventually, you can make it beautiful too, and make it out of, or, or I guess, change the form and, and and change the colors. It's there's a lot to do there that I feel like people don't even think about because it's just it's so obvious. It's oh what they're they're everywhere. <laughs> I don't know. Because that could change. It would literally make many new industries, assuming it worked. <clears throat> so This is yeah. interesting. The, the only 
semi-similar experience I have with hard metal. So I, it's not rock, but when a couple months ago I was tinkering on a project that that had to that was like a pretty large scale brass production effort, and we were considering different approaches to manufacturing. And the preferred approach, when it came to making sure that the product was precise, it shocked me how much how much waste there is because you have this ideal form factor, right? Imagine a key, which is made from a brass plate. Well, after you stamp the key out of the brass plate, what do you do with all the leftover brass? Do you like melt it down and then reuse it? So rocks feels like a big opportunity, but I wonder if waste would be a problem after you use it to create the final product. I don't know. True. Maybe there are definitely waste byproducts. I don't know. Yeah, that's something that would be up to yeah the the chemists and the geologists and but I'd be super interested to see that applied and at least see some R and D go mm-hmm. towards that because that's the disposal is for sure clean because it's a rock mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah yeah <laughs> just throw it on the ground good. <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah all right should we do the next idea I I would love to yes. Corey, you want to take it or you want me to go to the next one? Um, I can run with uh, one. We, we can keep it brief and, and just get as many out there yeah, as possible. Yeah. But um, yeah. Oh, which one do I want to go with? <laughs> I don't want to disappoint. One thing that I really want to either fund or do super down the line, this would be super resource in, in, intensive, but this I hope is in the idea womb. And um, as my girlfriend called it when she heard the podcast, hopefully she said, hopefully not the idea grave, but it's basically like, all right, so one huge problem that I see like kind of arising is when we have the amount of space debris is ridiculous. We're currently tracking like between half a million and a million pieces of debris, like mi- micrometeorites. We have man-made space junk and, and this is going extremely fast and, and tons of satellites have already been uh, damaged, destroyed by it. But if you think that just Starlink alone, it's going to like quadruple our satellite presence. And then you also have a Blue Origins project going up and it's just the tip of the spear, right? There's going to be a lot of junk in space. There needs to be a way to protect our assets up there too. And, and with that, I think that there'd be a cool way to harness energy. And I think one thing that I'm, I'm playing around with just in my head, I, I, I can't build this now, but it'd be like a solar mesh. So instead of Instead of a hard, rigid structure, basically this mesh that can uh, absorb and distribute the shock of something that's going so ridiculously fast, also absorbing like radiant energy from the sun, which should, in theory, also save our ozone over time. And I think that could be something that's super cool. I mean, if you had this like kind of mesh that was eventually built out, so it could cover like an extremely large area, not just around individual satellites, but around a, like a colony of satellites, then a cluster of satellites, colony is not the right word, then I, I, I don't know. I think that, that would be pretty cool. And, and the amount of energy that we could generate, because there's more energy beamed to Earth from our sun in, in one hour than we actually consume in an, an entire year, which is ridiculous and what? makes the case for fossil fuels seem even <laughs> less legitimate. Yeah, one hour, it's more than we use in an entire year in the entire world. So I think something that can, one, absorb this radiant energy, but yeah, two, actually protect these assets that we have up there because it's a lot of money going into that and it's going to be a huge part of like our infrastructure going forward. Like we need a solution and I think it needs to be something that's not rigid. That's Whoa. something I want to do. <laughs> Long way out. This is, this is 
If you ever hear of a moonshot, this is it right here. Yeah, man. Like imagine – I'm trying to picture this in my head. I don't know why, but I think on boats they have those mesh nets. And this is probably not what it would look like, but I just imagine like massive like me- these nets. Like I don't even – No, like I a dragon net, right? Yeah, but then – No, imagine, that's exactly what I was thinking. But then let's say it's going in orbit and all of a sudden these things are coming at – I don't even know how fast it is. Hundreds of miles an hour coming. Like how do you then redistribute the – this is this. I don't know. I honestly don't know. It's, and this it's is where eighteen thousand miles an hour on average that space like flies. And then how do you redistribute like the direction of it, or do you do you, like almost just send it out into space? I it just seems so incredibly challenging. But wow, what a fascinating project to work on that would be just great for humanity and feels like just a really fun. An ambitious project to work on like whoa yeah, i think it could be pretty cool and again this is just we're talking like idea grave like things that are, i know that the, the, this is something that would take a lot of time energy i don't even know where to begin really i just <laughs> love playing around with the the idea but think about like a dragnet in the ocean they're obviously like terrible but uh-huh. you have a a, 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 a human made structure that basically has enough force to drag through the water, which already is a significant amount of resistance, but also rip up coral reefs and basically pull against the the strength of millions of fish. So that's a lot of force. And I I, I think that when you have something that is, I, I think that you could, if you just use momentum, because again, these satellites are also going extremely fucking fast. And I think that all you would have to do is redirect the course of the space debris by allowing it to roll off of the mesh. Because again, I think if it's like a rigid structure, that, that's how you get things to, to get dented would be an understatement, but dented, torn apart, ripped. But if mm-hmm. this could just distribute it like that energy by allowing it to roll off and it's hard to, yeah. it's, it's, sorry, I'm, I'm not doing a good job of explaining it. I think that would save a ton of our assets up there in space and if it was used as like a dragnet it could also be used to like gather a lot of the space debris which then could hopefully be brought down and hopefully <laughs> I, I think the way we look at the single-use plastic crisis and like recycling of materials is going to be similar to how we look at space debris in the future there's so much there's like steel there's there's ceramic there's so much up there that can be repurposed and again it's only it's going to be like a thick cloud of just stuff <laughs> spinning around Earth. Oh. There's going to have to be some sort of a quick close loop recycling done there. Going to have to be. So maybe this could do that. I don't know. Dude, this is so interesting. I'd be, I, I feel like we could do a whole episode, multiple episodes on space waste management. I, I wonder, I'd imagine Blue Origin, SpaceX, Virgin, they've got to be in. There's got to be someone working on this because they that's a ton of capital risk for these companies. It costs yeah. so much to get up there. I yeah, don't know. There are like there are some cool projects cleaning up um, space debris. But I think that – I forget the name of one. But there, there's one that's up right now. Look it up. Starling has to be partnering with companies like that because there's no way. Yeah, but I, I, but I think the reason for making it – like, a, like an, a mesh that could also generate energy is because you have to make it profitable. It's like ocean cleanup. Like the most successful ocean cleanup projects are are not going to be the ones that are just nonprofits, these big sluggish uh, like NGOs. It's the companies like Seven Clean Seas and Four Ocean that mm-hmm. found a way to eat productize waste. So I think you'd need to find a way to make it 
yeah, yep. cost money instead of just being like a good thing to do, which mm-hmm. is unfortunate, but hey, it works. Mm-hmm. I feel like you could get subsidies from like the UN and, and large governments too, to help make that happen. I don't know. There's definitely a lot of like bureaucratic governmental hoops to jump through there, but. Uh, with, with space debris, probably. <laughs> 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 Like, who do you go to? That, <laughs> yeah. that, that barrier to entry is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Hot take, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Cool. That's epic. All right, y'all. I think we got time for one more idea. Who wants to bring it home? Anyone got one more home run mm-hmm. on the docket? Yeah, I'd love to. On, on the topic of like data and a lot of stuff, I, I think I guess it's not directly related. I think that what's super interesting is like – and this would be an AI that I think is more advanced than what we have now. And the, the amount of parameters that we need to be able to like execute on, on this would be ridiculous. But basically something that could just do your career for you, meaning it, it fully analyzes your financial situation. It knows that your, your personal burn. It knows like what your goals are. Like do you have kids that need to do X, Y, and Z? And it would automatically apply for jobs that it knows you have a better chance of getting. It would automatically invest your money in securities that, that is molded to your risk portfolio, like your risk uh, tolerance. But I think like something that would just automate your life, it, like it would access your healthcare data. And then, and then it would, all of your shopping would be tailored to like your heart problem. Therefore, your insurance would be lower because it could prove to your insurance company that you're making so something that could understand your entire life from a 360 like the full 360 and then automate all of the decisions you need to make to 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 basically execute that and i think that would be super interesting whether oh, it's health whether it's finance whether it's the job hunt even if it's education like i think that you should take this course cuz one you're interested in it and two you're going to make the most money in 10 years doing this because you want to do x i don't know so just i guess to to wrap it up what are your thoughts on people's lives just fully being automated because I think that's going to happen sooner than we think to everyone. So my personal opinion is I am very bullish on automating pieces of your life. If it a means it frees you up to do more and spend more of your time in fulfilled work, life experience, etc. The scary piece is again, I, I I always struggle when you start to abstract out sense of agency, but I think I had my buddy is like the the most kind of progressive buddy in my circle, and when he saw GPT three, he's oh my god, this is the end of all editorial jobs, blah blah blah. And the way I look at it, the counter is like, all right, I think it'd be great if some type of smart algorithm could like the Reuters or Associated Press article, which is like fact reporting. This is the event. This is the time. This is what happened without any sense of opinion. Because now instead of a writer allocating hours and hours to a templated piece, they can spend time doing much like an exhaustive investigative, more ambitious, fulfilling piece of work. So like maybe I, I love those applications. That's where I'm really bullish on smart technology. But I think as long as we can deploy solutions that free people up, like the thing that automation is doing is saving time and not like living life for you. Like the things where like making those decisions are fun. They are liberating. That's where there's, I think, where where I draw my personal line. I think that's a really interesting um, way of looking at it. 
and yeah, like the like automation should only allow us to do more human things more often. I think you're completely right there. Mm-hmm. If, if if you don't have to, if you can have something that can find a better job for you, or or tell you like pretty objectively, like what you would enjoy doing more because it can identify patterns better than anything else. And it understands you probably in ways that you don't understand yourself. I I, I think it could achieve what you're getting at, which is like, Mm -hmm. it should be liberating. It shouldn't be just like laziness. Like you should be doing more as a human when your life is being automated. You shouldn't be looking at it like it's making, allowing you to do less, Mm -hmm. whether that's hiking, exploring art, like you said, like creative literature, like whatever it is, like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Nick, what do you think? You know, I think that, so I look at it like, okay, and, and this is one possible, two hopeful. I would look at this as, like Corey's saying, humans would be at the top, hopefully, possibly, this is going to give them actually more agency, not just in a realm of, oh, off of technology, like hiking art, literature, things like that, which are beautiful, focusing on your relationships more, great, but also... I think even at a higher level of tech and metadata and and everything else and just the digital realm, you can explore even more on top of AI using basically leveraging it. And uh, yeah, that's kind of how I look at it is hopefully we don't get drowned in it. We don't get buried in it. We just were able to rise above, stay afloat and actually utilize it to our advantage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Guys, you guys came out bringing the heat today. I think this is a good place to, to cap off. I've got three more on the list, but if the listeners like this type of informal idea riffing, I would love to have you guys back for a round three. As this, is, this is the type of stuff that I, I love these conversations regardless. So if we can bring value to the community and record it. <laughs> oh man, double, uh, double whammy right there. Yeah, man, I, I live for this stuff. So we'd love to. Let us know what the, the feedback looks like. And maybe it'd be cool, yeah, if you had your audience members give a few of their ideas that, that can be expanded upon. Something you were probably thinking about. But Oh, that's a good idea. I like that. Actually, question for you guys. I'd love to, to get your take because I think what you guys are doing on the community building side of things is exactly what I'd like to do with In Good Hands. So we have, we just crossed like 20, 22K subscribers. And... The problem with that is I don't know who these people are. I don't interact with them. Like it's a, it's a, it's like a one to many, very one sided stream of, of conversation. And I think the most effective community building approach I've seen is my, again, my first million. They create a Facebook group. There's tons of ongoing conversation that happens all day, every day. So, if you guys had to give me one piece of advice to start building some type of like much more equitable community where it's not just me <laughs> and and the guest of, of the episode talking, it's, hey, it's much more inclusive. What would be your recommendation? It's a good question. I We've used Facebook groups before and it's funny. We actually we were just talking to our ad buyer last night and, and he was talking about how powerful they are. But yeah, I don't know. I think that if you could do some sort of like spotlight on the cool stuff, because if someone's listening to what you're talking about, it means they're passionate about clean tech, um, sustainability, any, anything in that world. Maybe highlight something they're, they're interested in or are currently doing mm-hmm. and then have a little 
brief segment where like you ask a guest to, Hey, like this, one of my viewers is doing this or listeners. If you like have a list of it, if you find the one most aligned with what your guest is doing, could you make an intro for them? Do you want to talk to them? Something like that. I don't know. And you could like preface it beforehand so they know it's coming, but uh-huh. something that could tie them into the person that you're, t- I don't know. Rambling. Oh, out, I like but- that. No, I like that a lot. That would be a really interesting segment of the episode too. It's, hey, someone's working on this idea. We've got some big guests coming on. Here's my probably like second tier elevator pitch. Is it interesting? Do you want, can you help them bring it to life or something of that nature? That'd be cool. Yeah, man. But you're doing a great job. That's a crazy number of subscribers. Awesome job. That's Dude, that's it's wild. Been, it's been fun. Um, yeah. Nick, I don't know if you had any advice. I'm, I'm just interested. Hey, where can I build this community? Like is Facebook group? Is that the go-to? Is it Slack? Should I just say, screw it? Keep making, keep just doing more episodes. If uh, I knew who your audience was, I'd, I'd be able to, cause if it was like a professional network, then I'd say something maybe like Slack. Definitely not LinkedIn groups are dead. Facebook groups are sometimes dead, but it, like, if it's all Gen Z, then I, I don't think Facebook groups are going to work. But uh-huh. yeah, I just have to, to see like demographic data, but mm-hmm. A lot of brands use groups and they kill it, so. Nice. All right, guys. You both are the best. This was freaking awesome, man. Thanks a ton. Thank you, guys. Hey there. You made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rock star founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at PeterA11 or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.